2: The following podcast includes explicit language. In other words, might get a little blue in here. Hope you can handle it.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 21st, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about whether the NBA is to blame for all the injuries in this year's playoffs, and we'll look at what happened with Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern will also join us to assess the Supreme Court's decision in NCAA versus Alston, a unanimous ruling against the college sports business model. And author David Epstein will be here to assess the strange case of Shelby Houlihan, the American distance runner who claimed she tested positive for a steroid because of a burrito. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4, also in D.C., Stefan Fatsas, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us, from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, and the upcoming Season 6, it's Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel.
2: What's up, man? I I need to check and see if Senor CC, my favorite burrito place here, is put a little nandrolone in my my burritos, <laughs> man.
0: I've been feeling You feeling ask in. for an extra dose. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah, I've been feeling pretty good working out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. You're
0: gonna double we should up it, on that pork,
2: Joel. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we should make it very clear that Joel's favorite burrito place. We have no evidence that there's any anything in the burritos. They're I'm sure they're amazing burritos.
2: Can I admit that I didn't know what pig Ofal was? I thought that was uh I thought I don't can know. Admit it. Is it like chitlins or what 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 kind of pork is that?
1: It is. Do y'all know what that is? <laughs> Awful
0: are the entrails and internal organs of an animal used as food. Oh, it's like chitlins then. Organ meat. Really, you can, we... a, you can have
2: you can have a chitlin burrito.
0: Well, I think it's just that they use the internal organs and they mix it in with the with the meat.
1: Well, we'll get into this. Uh... A little bit later. Well, we're really but,
0: not going to get into what's
2: well, okay, may, in a pig off off my, mother, it, but, yeah. my grandmother would be very excited to know about the existence of a chitlin burrito. So <laughs> we'll it,
1: see if we um, <laughs> Before we get to the NBA, I did want to double back to something I talked about on last week's show, which was uh, during our conversation about Christian Eriksson's on-field collapse. I mentioned the Formula One driver, Romain Grosjean, whose car caught on fire during a race and that scene was on the F1 reality series, Drive to Survive. Counter to what I said, Grosjean did not retire from driving after that race. He's actually now racing Indy cars. So thank you to all the listeners who schooled me on that. And who reminded me, and all of us, that it's always a good idea to verify what you see on reality TV.
0: And since we're doing corrections, I think I said that Christian Eriksson played for AC Milan. He played for Inter Milan.
2: I didn't make any mistakes last uh, (laughs) episode, so. Good job, Joel. (laughs) Thanks. So the NBA's Final Four was finally set Sunday night after the Atlanta Hawks pulled off a Game 7 upset of the top-seeded Philadelphia 76ers in the Eastern Conference semifinals. Thus, the last teams standing in the league are now the LA Clippers and Phoenix Suns in the West and Milwaukee and the Hawks in the East. Of those teams, the one that most recently won a title was the Bucks in 1972, which is, you know, half a century ago. But it's hard not to think about which teams might still be playing if not for an unprecedented rash of injuries to All-Stars, like Anthony Davis and Kyrie Irving. Eight NBA All-Stars have missed playoff games due to injury, and make that nine if you include Chris Paul, who's currently in the league's COVID protocol and missed Game 1 of Phoenix's win in the West Finals. LeBron James, who himself played through an ankle injury in the Lakers' first-round defeat, took to Twitter in a particularly self-aggrandizing fashion to point out he'd warned about starting a new season so soon after the end of the previous one. They all didn't want to listen to me about the start of the season, LeBron tweeted. Sorry, fans. Wish you guys were seeing all your fave guys right now. So, Josh, who do you think the they is that LeBron is referring to, and do you think that he had a point?
1: No injured players in Space Jam, too, I think is the important thing. <laughs> um, also, you forgot about the injuries that Ben Simmons suffered when Joel Embiid and Doc Rivers drove a box <laughs> over him. <After laughs> he's the got Sixers. train
2: tracks. He's out, he's out for the next, se- next season train uh, after tracks. After the, the Sixers back.
1: lost Game 7. I'm sure oh. we'll get to that in a minute, though. But to answer your question, the they and LeBron Street, I think, definitely include the league ownership and the commissioner's office. But it should also include the players' union because they agreed to this year's condensed schedule it didn't read to me like lebron was calling out the union and his bff chris paul but the point is that the pandemic forced every industry and every individual to make choices between unpalatable options and what in this case the league and the players decided is they didn't want to lose hundreds of millions of dollars by starting the season late and playing a lot fewer games and so i think that's that and there is a lot of data that suggests that injury rates were higher this year. Kevin Pelton of ESPN says there are more players out per game due to injury than during any season since he started tracking it in 2009, 2010. And there are particular injuries that fit in with this narrative of condensed schedule, soft tissue, whatever, like Kawhi Leonard, for instance, with the Clippers um, and his knee injury. like That would make sense with this. But the thing that's nagging at me a little bit, Stefan, is... With LeBron James, he had, like, an enormous dude fall on his ankle, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I don't know if Solomon Hill was, like, addled because of the condensed schedule, and that's what made him fall onto LeBron, and maybe it's like LeBron is old and so he doesn't recover as well as he used to, but that also doesn't have to do with the condensed schedule, or maybe it does a tiny bit. And then, you know, the other most notable injury of last round was Giannis just, like, slamming his enormous body onto Kyrie Irving's ankle which, again, has nothing to do with a condensed schedule or, you know, starting the season late. Like, Kyrie Irving didn't play that much this year. He was extremely well-rested. And so, on the one hand, I think if you do look at the numbers, there is a story here. But a lot of the reason why we think that injuries have predominated and are the big storyline is because of these like notable all-star injury moments. And I just think it's really hard and maybe misleading to attribute those to some larger trend.
0: Yeah, this is a merging of narratives, right? You've got the the frustration among players that they had to come back after the sort of record short layoff, I think, for the Heat and the Lakers. It was 71 games, the shortest you know, in the history of,
1: of the league. And it doesn't seem like a coincidence that they both flamed out in the first round.
0: I mean maybe it is maybe it isn't. I mean the 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 merging of the narratives is that you it's it's a convenient, I uh, maybe not convenient, maybe legitimate, but it is and it is an explanation for why top players and top teams have flamed out of the playoffs. You were going to say
1: excuse, but you decided to be kind at the last you minute. You noticed that, didn't you?
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Um I mean the reality is that players get injured all the time. All stars get injured on the, all the time. Kevin Durant got injured During the playoffs a couple years ago, Clay Thompson didn't play in playoffs because he got injured. This is not unusual. What is unusual is that LeBron James lost in the first round, and it was really hard for him, and he got hurt. And yes, other players have gotten injured as well. I mean, it's hard to know for certain when you look at each of these individual cases, whether they are related to the pandemic and the condensed schedule or whether, as you pointed out, Josh, there's a cruel fate in playing sports. People get hurt. The, these are not mutually exclusive uh, occurrences, right? The the fact that, that we're not seeing some familiar names and that certainly it's contributed to teams losing in the playoffs should not also over- look the fact that hey Giannis didn't get hurt he's still playing Trey Young's still playing there's still some really damn good players that are still playing
2: well I, I would like to push back just a little bit because if we read Tom Haberstro's piece from about a month ago about injury NBA injuries he points out in the piece that falling down is a sign that players aren't at their peak right and the way that LeBron got hurt falling down the way that Giannis stepped on Kyrie's ankle and you know the the sort of stuff that is happening yes it does seem sort of random but it also is a piece of players being tired potentially and, yeah fatigue yeah, right right particularly being fatigue. so like I mean it, I, I know it's one to say oh these do seem like random occurrences and it's just very you know a coincidence in some sort of ways that these guys got hurt in the way that they got hurt but falling down a lot uh, and if, I mean, look, we look at Anthony Davis, another guy who falls down a lot. I mean, a lot of times that's because people are not it, working at their optimal selves. And so I don't, you know... I think it can be both things, right? I think that, like, LeBron is finding the convenient narrative. But there's also some real truth in this, that some of these injuries that we're seeing, even if we think that they're random, they're not, they're not really. And I think if, even if we just look at the quality of the basketball, man, these guys are gassed. Like, the way people have been falling down in Game Sevens. So, I mean, if you watch the end of the Nets-Bucks game, I mean, those dudes were gassed. Like, just, they were barely able to get up and down the floor. And the over time, they scored six total points. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I, I do think that, like, the way that the NBA has set this season up has made it so that the players are more likely to get injured and that this is, like, obviously an unprecedented run of injuries. It doesn't have to mean everything. It doesn't mean that, like, the NBA did anything wrong, that they're, you know, that they could have chosen an option that wouldn't have made players get hurt. But I do think that, like, we should think about the fact that, yeah, no, I mean, it's possible that, like some of those injuries we're talking about that it's not they're not random like they, they, i mean this is stuff that happens at the end of a very long season and in, in a particularly difficult season
1: yeah I mean those are all really good good points, and I think um maybe the thing that we can all agree on is that it's just not possible to know on an individual level what causes right. an injury, and so I think the two points coming out of that are you know maybe the most important thing about this going forward is what the players think and what they're saying, which is why I think it's smart for you to lead with LeBron James's tweet, because this is the guy who invented and brought on the player empowerment era. And what did, that, what did the player empowerment era mean? It meant that superstars, and I guess only superstars, had the ability to decide where they play and who they play with. And so maybe the next phase is that superstars get to decide when they play, too. Um, we've already started to see that. I mean, I referenced Kyrie Irving already, but there's, you know, the load management stuff, which the NBA has pushed back on and saying stars need to play more in nationally televised games and um, just different rules about when and how you can sit out due to rest. But I think with what we've seen this year and what the players clearly think is what's happening, I think there's going to be a lot more both kind of public statements and in in terms of actions with players just saying, you know, I know my body, I know what it takes to be in optimal condition, and so I'm just going to play when I think and when my team thinks it's appropriate for me to play and that has nothing yeah. to do with what is on the nba schedule.
0: Right. And and that's a culmination of years of discussion and research and data about the load on on elite athletes and you know from you know pounding to sleep to travel to nutrition we know so much more about how athletes bodies are affected by being elite athletes than we ever did. And that is a reality. So the tension is what the tension will always be. Will league uh, owners and management, team owners and management, accede to the notion that we should be playing less? Because fewer games means less revenue. But less revenue also means less to share with the players. This is a tangled, tangled knot that you know, I think the players are going to, as you say, Josh, I mean, this is where it's really helpful. Are the players willing to, to take a stand on, you know, in, in favor of their own health that might have a revenue effect on their earnings? Or will ownership just use it as an excuse to try to extract more concessions out of players the next time they collectively bargain? Yeah,
2: it's interesting too, because I don't know, like, what is the most pressing issue here, right? Like, anybody that follows the NBA in NBA Twitter, you know that there's a narrative that, oh, the players don't care about the regular season. There's so many games they will sit out. Some games are not competitive. And in fact, that the regular season is almost totally divorced from the postseason in terms of like strategy and everything else. Like, an example being the defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert. Being played off the floor in the playoffs every year for the last four or five years because he can't defend the pick and roll, right? Well,
1: he's also, effect- like the offenses for the um, Bucks and the Sixers being so great in the regular season and then just looking horrible in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, at times, and at times,
2: right? No, right. And it's just like I mean, we know that the competitive intensity of the regular season is totally different from the postseason. So, is like, do we know like if the NBA decided to cut back to like a 65 game season or a 60 game season if maybe the players have more energy and they're more invested and you might see more of a competitive brand of ball and maybe that might increase interest like we just don't know right but um, I do think that long term protecting your players protecting your stars is probably the better play for the NBA like wouldn't you'd rather have an extra couple years of LeBron than like burning through him early, or you know, I, I just, you know, I think about like going back the day because people talked about how much the players played, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I realized like Isaiah Thomas' career was basically done when he was like 31 years old. And like, you don't, you know, like w- nobody wants that. Like, we want to see these great players play longer. And I think that that's what the NBA should be investing in, like, not the 74th game. Uh, of the season between the Bulls and the Timberwolves right like maybe maybe like thinking having a more a broader more long-term view of the health of their players and the health of their game is the way to go about this but I know that that's tough because why would you leave money on the table like you know these networks are willing to pay for so many games and if you change that then you know maybe that could throw things off I don't know
0: yeah. Adam Silver seems to be willing to entertain these kinds of questions. I mean, there has been conversation about shortening the regular season. I mean, if any league is 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 going to sort of look at this stuff um, in a sort of holistic way, it's probably the NBA.
1: Let's talk about um, Nets-Bucks and Hawks-Sixers because some of these issues were in play in both series. And, you know, Joel, you mentioned how gassed everybody was in OT of the Nets-Bucks game. I mean, if you look at it from the Nets side in particular, I think both teams actually, that condition of exhaustion was imposed on the teams by their coaches. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. There were many, I don't know how, how good they were. I mean, they're, they're NBA players, so they're of, of reasonable quality. But it wasn't like there weren't other like men in uniform on the benches who could have come into the game at certain points.
2: Can I ask re- a question? Does DeAndre Jordan still play for the Nets? What, I mean, about,
1: he... <laughs> what about being played off the floor? Joel? you know oh, that's, that's the, you were you were talking about it before Th- this this issue around injuries and stuff that's particular to this season runs into the fact that the playoffs are different, that teams and players are willing to be on a knife's edge in the playoffs that Kevin Durant coming off of an Achilles, I mean, it wasn't like super recent at this point, but he's playing every minute. Of these games and doing it like happily. And I, I think as fans um, and people that are concerned about players' health, we're not worried about the fact that he's playing. It's like what he, it's the reason that he is who he is, is that he plays every minute of game seven and puts on one of the most amazing performances that I think any of us have ever seen. And that performance Back to, like, the whole player empowerment super team thing. Um, Not to get too heavy, but it's like, you know, you can have a lot of people around you. You can have people that care about you. You can have people that love you. But, you know, sometimes you're just on your own, Joel and Stefan. Sometimes you just got to do it by yourself. And, you know, Durant out there with, like, Harden on one leg with no Kyrie, it is just fundamentally true for all that we, like, want these guys to be, you know, to have the ability to play where they want to play. And, and, and we think that's all well and good, but it's just more fun to see like Kevin Durant do that and like be his like ultimate offensive weapon self. And it's, th- there's never been anybody like that guy. I mean, and, and what he was able to do in that game was amazing, but he is
0: the asteroid yeah, that's right.
2: shout out Sam Anderson. I, I, I mean, I guess like I do think that there's something to be said for watching Kevin Durant p- push himself to like his edge, right? Uh, to play in such a way that it's like, oh, like he could po- not possibly do any more um, in terms of maximizing his performance and endurance or whatever else. But I also, just think, man, that's that's sad. I, I, don't, I you know, I don't quite enjoy it as much as I do seeing like guys be fresh. And play like great at the end of the game. Like I know that, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm probably splitting hairs. That's fun too. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm probably splitting hairs here, and that doesn't mean I want to see more Bruce Brown and Joe Harris. But it, it, it does mean that, like, I, I, I feel like, like, you remember? I guess it was like uh, six finals ago when Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving were out, and LeBron had to basically play every minute and do every damn thing. Um, And I was just like. Yeah, it's cool to see LeBron like have to like go hero mode, but I also it was like, man, it wouldn't it just be better though if like everybody was healthy and we could just see the best possible basketball where everybody's getting a little bit of a break, you know, maybe take four <laughs> minutes off at a
0: game.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you just like when people really get good. a break. I can yeah. I can relate to that. Stephanie I mean there
0: was this there was this expectation that we were going to see. Durant, Harden, and Irving together. I mean, they hadn't played together but for like what forty-three seconds or something during the regular season. I but think that's I think an exaggeration, but uh, but yeah. Um, but the the, uh, the notion was that we were going to see after this crazy season, in which there were injuries, and Kyrie took us took a breather, you know, took a little sabbatical, and everyone started to heal. Durant was out for a while that we would get this. So there was this, this disappointment that, oh, we're not seeing the fulfillment of the greatness. And then we got to see the second part of the narrative, which was like Kevin Durant being all three of them at once. And that was amazing. And there is something so remarkable about watching peak athletes perform at their peak in hero mode. You know, we'll never forget what Kevin Durant did. And, like, I can't think of another instance where, you know, the dude went 0 for 6 in overtime. The, the nobody, including himself, didn't seem upset or going to blame him for anything because we just saw one of the most remarkable performances that we're ever going to see on a basketball I court. So interrupt- that, was, that, was, that was pretty, I mean, I thought that was pretty striking, too, just sort of the way Durant like handled the end of the game reminded me that for the athletes themselves, there isn't this like overarching disappointment in losing. It's the acceptance. And like seeing him on the court at the end of that game was like, man, I did everything I could and congrats to you guys.
2: I think Stefan is filibustering because he doesn't want to talk about what the Sixers did yesterday. Oh man. Is that why, is that why you did that? Cause <laughs> I mean, we, I think before we get out of the segment, we should yeah. just talk about the collapse Of the process just for a second, because I mean, I like I don't know when the last time was that I felt sorry for, you know, a millionaire athlete in that situation. But like to the extent that you can feel the capacity for empathy for somebody that's wealthy, great, handsome, has a good life. I was like, man, Ben Simmons, man, I felt so bad for that, dude.
1: I thought you were going to say you felt bad for Joel Embiid Joel for being, and <laughs> being stuck with Ben Simmons. It is, I do take, I think, a perverse amount of glee in the fact that the pro, whenever the process doesn't work out, because you know what? The process for the Hawks was get one good player. They get pretty <laughs> Young, and now they seem pretty good. Whereas the, the Sixers are like, we're so smart, we're going to like... Uh, get all of these good players and what could possibly go wrong? We we can't we can't possibly lose. Oh well. But the the Simmons thing and him getting the ball under the basket right at the end of the game and just refusing to shoot. Not shooting in the fourth quarter of like refusing most to of dunk, these games.
0: Joel. Refusing yeah. to dunk. But yeah.
1: I feel bad for I do feel bad for him. And it seems like he's the closest we've gotten to a basketball player with like Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch, Rick Ankiel situation, and it's always a bad idea to bet against talent, and this guy is just amazingly talented, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he figures it out, but man, <laughs> it is really, really rough uh, to, to watch what um, became of him in these, in these playoffs.
2: In our next segment, we talk about how the Supreme Court handed the NCAA its biggest L to date.
1: On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to grill Joel about the U.S. track and field trials and the names we're going to want to know going into the Olympics, including 100-meter stars Shakari Richardson and Trayvon Brummel. To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. You don't just have to be. You're going to want to be. You get bonus segments on this show and other Slate podcasts. You also get all your Slate podcasts ad free, and you get unlimited reading on Slate.com. It's only $1 for the first month. If you want to try it out, you can sign up at Slate.com slash Plus. That's Slate.com slash Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
0: The Supreme Court on Monday handed down what was immediately pronounced one of the most important decisions in the history of sports law. The case is NCAA v. Alston, and while the ruling was narrow, the court found that the NCAA can't restrict payments by schools to athletes for some academic-related expenses. The potential legal and practical consequences could be enormous, up to and including the death of the NCAA as we know it. Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts and the law for Slate, joins us now. Hey, Mark. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. Often with Supreme Court rulings, you have to clear out the legal underbrush to understand what the justices are saying. Not so here. This ruling was unanimous, and it includes stark and plain language that undermines the entire historical justification for college sports as a quote-unquote amateur enterprise.
4: Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, this is a pretty easy opinion to understand. I think anyone could pick it up and g- sort of grasp the bottom line here, which is that the Supreme Court is highly skeptical of the sort of baseline fundamental theory that the NCAA has used for many, many decades to justify what would be in any other context overt monopolistic price fixing and cartel-like anti-competition control.
1: And... The concurrence from Brett Kavanaugh laid that out in much starker and fierier terms. Fierier is a hard word to say. Um, you
0: should say that the, that, the, that the majority of, that the opinion was written by another Trump appointee, Neil Gorsuch.
4: That's right. Um, both of both of Trump's uh, male appointees were on board, as was Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The entire court was united here. Uh, and the only difference, I guess, is that Kavanaugh may have gone farther if he had the votes this time around. Uh, but Gorsuch still did a pretty good job sort of just walloping the NCAA every which way.
1: So the Kavanaugh concurrence was interesting to me, Mark, both because of the language that he used. I thought he did a good job in kind of putting it in terms that anyone could understand, like, restaurants can't come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. I mean, that seems like a fair and accurate analogy. But based on my reading of it, it seemed like he was actively inviting further and more expansive challenges to the NCAA model, basically saying, doesn't seem like it would really withstand scrutiny if somebody wants to come and challenge us more. Am I reading that correctly?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And let me give a little background to explain why that makes sense. Uh, What happened here is that a number of current and former student-athletes challenged several different rules that the NCAA imposes on its members. Um, One of those rules is, of course, no direct compensation for playing sports. Uh, Another one of the rules is a really tight cap on education-related benefits. Um, And so that could include scholarships for future academic programs like graduate school or vocational school. It could include money for laptops, uh, for tutoring, that kind of thing. And the, the lower court upheld the NCAA's ban on direct compensation uh, but prohibited the NCAA's really tight cap on educational benefits. And both of those decisions flowed from the central argument here that the NCAA put forward, which is that uh, – consumers of sports love watching unpaid people compete. And that is how Amy Coney Barrett put in during oral arguments. And that's exactly what the NCAA argued. You know, uh, apparently consumers love amateurism. They love amateur sports. There's a huge cluster of consumers out there who draw a really bright line between amateur sports and professional sports and feel that if amateur players were allowed to be paid by their schools, that the entire sport would fundamentally change and, and people wouldn't want to watch it anymore. And the demand for college athletics would dry up because all of these consumers would huff and puff and say, we cannot accept these paid players. They're not amateurs to us anymore. So the Supreme Court did not actually hear that first part of the lower court's decision. The Supreme Court did not consider in this case um, whether the ban on direct compensation is lawful or not. Nobody appealed that part of the ruling. That stood no matter what. This case was only about those education-related benefits. And so here, the Supreme Court unanimously said, look, no one is going to think that amateur athletes are not amateur because they're getting education-related benefits if only If anything, those benefits highlight the fact that these people are students in school, not professionals. Uh, And the court did not address the, I think, more pressing issue of direct compensation. And what Brett Kavanaugh is doing in his concurrence is teeing that up for a future case. He's saying, all right, guys, I understand this particular question didn't make it to the court this time, but we have now kind of laid the groundwork to answer it. And I am very ready and enthusiastic and excited for that case to come to us because I really think that the reasoning of today's decision should also uh, undermine the NCAA's ban on direct compensation to athletes.
2: This is, I guess, why, so, you know, if Brett Kavanaugh says that, um, he's inviting another challenge. And I think that's why so many people that support athletes getting paid and being able to avail themselves of um, all the, you know, financial opportunities out there were so, they seemed a little bit more pessimistic about this. And I wonder if that's because, I mean, consider that Alston v. NCAA started in 2012. This is 2021. So any challenge, Mark, right? Wouldn't that just, I mean, we're talking, you know, years in the future, possibly with a completely different Supreme Court at that point, right?
4: It's going to take a while, um, and any kind of antitrust case takes a while to work its way up to the courts, in part because they're very fact-sensitive disputes, Um, and that's what accounts for the kind of split decision below in this case, where the judge held like a 10-day trial, she amassed a ton of evidence, and eventually decided, okay, well, the amateurism argument can cut the mustard when it comes to direct payments, but not for education related benefits. So if students want to now go back, build off this Supreme Court decision and argue, actually, the the whole amateur argument doesn't hold water for direct payments either, they're going to have to build up a record. They're going to have to show not only that this is a restraint on trade, but that it has the effect of reducing competition, that it does not actually benefit consumers. And that's, I think, a kind of difficult thing to show. I mean, there is a lively debate in this country about whether Uh, not paying college athletes is the right thing to do. And many people who argue that it is the right thing to do, that paying college athletes will change the nature of the game. It will uh, make the sport more professionalized and dry up consumer interest in it. And so, you know, that's going to take a long time at the trial court. And no matter how the trial court rules, it's going to have to slowly trickle up through the appeals court and to SCOTUS, which, you know, we could all be dead by then.
0: But Kavanaugh also, in his concurrence, did signal which justices often do. Do, right, Mark? Like, go figure out a better way here. At one point, he says these difficult questions could be resolved in ways other than litigation. Legislation would be one option, or colleges and student-athletes could potentially engage in collective bargaining to provide student-athletes a fairer share of the revenues that they generate for their colleges. Um, and, right. Stephen, and, and, and name, and, and, image,
1: and likeness legislation is going into effect in six states coming up uh, within a week. And so we have the NCAA here feeling pressure from a bunch of different sides, both about any future litigation that might be inspired by this ruling, but also the grounds moving uh, underneath them legislatively at the state level and maybe at the federal level soon.
4: Yeah. And um, first of all, I never, ever in my entire life expected Brett Kavanaugh to use the words collective bargaining in a positive way. Like that was kind of shocking. Uh, second, I think he's onto something here, um, and his example of the ability of athletes to use their likeness to profit from their publicity—that's kind of a success story in this area, right? Because um, athletes demanded it. The NCAA resisted. States started passing these laws, nonetheless, and eventually the NCAA caved. And I think that's well,
1: what, the NCAA hasn't quite caved. Are The the NCAA is um, partially retrenched.
0: (laughs) Retrenched is right. I mean, sort of hired some more lobbyists to try to figure out (laughs) ways to protect itself.
4: Right. A number of states have passed laws allowing college athletes to make money off of their publicity, off of their image. And the NCA is considering softening its stance there, uh, fueling pressure from the state legislation. And I think that these are really complicated questions. And sometimes the answers need to be nuanced and need to come from lawmakers. Uh, and I think that if Congress could step in here and craft a solution that really did benefit college athletes and provide a clear Clear answer, everyone would be much better off than a single Supreme Court decision just declaring up or down, you have to give them fair market value or you're allowed to keep you know, using forced labor. It's difficult for courts to resolve these questions on their own. Um, and that's something that Gorsuch actually hints toward in his opinion, um, where he suggests that you know if, as a general rule, courts don't want to be in the business of crafting these really broad public policy uh, rules uh, just using a Really short statute like the Sherman Act,
1: Joel. I'm curious for your thoughts on this seeming like maybe the only bipartisan issue in America. I mean, you can see it um, in the uni- unanimity of the court opinion, but also um, Republican and Democratic members of Congress have talked about the NCA in very harsh terms and the need for reform here. Um, And and it might seem obvious to us, and the facts of the case might seem obvious, but it's just so striking how John Paul Stevens in 1984, who's not seen as a reactionary, wrote about the NCAA playing a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. And so, Joel, do you think that just like the political winds have changed? Have more people just become aware of the fact that this is wrong and unfair?
2: Well, you all you know, can can second guess me on this, right? But I just, don't you just think that this is more of Americans increasing distrust of institutions? Like, it's easy to hate the NCAA. It's easy to hate the media. It's easy to hate, you know, any any institution that has gotten rich in like the last, you know, few decades, right? And so people look at it skeptically, but that doesn't mean, at least to me, that people are on the side of paying athletes. Like, that, you know, these are two separate things. And the NCAA has always been sort of a dodge to me. And Mark, maybe you can correct me this or or or, or, or Stephen and Josh, but like the NCAA is just a group of institutions. It wouldn't take anything for like 50, like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, UCLA, Washington to just form a whole nother organization based around giving extra, uh, you know, postgraduate scholarships to athletes and saying, okay, well, that's the way we're going to compensate because we don't have to pay and we can just, we can compensate our athletes in that way. Right? Like, I mean, I just, I know that this seems bipartisan, but I don't think that it's, it means that people are on the side of the athletes getting paid. I just think it means that it's easy to bang on an institution that is unpopular and increasingly so, but that doesn't mean that like you know, the fundamentals of amateurism are threatened
0: here. Does that make sense? You know, I don't know that I agree, and I wonder whether the real, like, really what's happening here is this this decades-long drip toward something that is equitable and right, and that people will just come to accept it because of all of the change that occurs. I mean, maybe this is a terrible analogy, but I wonder if it's not a little bit like marriage equality, that, you know, we go decades and decades with firm, clear public opinion polling opposition, and then suddenly, oh, the majority of the country thinks this is totally fine. And I wonder whether once college athletes are paid um, their market value or something closer to it, people will just be like, oh yeah, of course, they should get paid some money. They're making billions of dollars from the TV rights. So I, I do think this is part of this slow continuum, and it's slower than a lot of us would like, but this is a huge development in sort of the affirmation that the Supreme Court is, you know, agrees with progressive sports analysts that this system is just completely unfair and fucked. Mm, I mean, I
2: don't know, man. I mean, most polling shows that like, I mean, the most recent poll that I could find, which is from you know, a few years ago, that like something that close to like three-fourths of white people overwhel- like, disapprove of, playing, of paying college athletes. Yeah, but and, like, I'm
0: saying like in 10 or 20 years, will we look back on this like, what was the big deal? Like, of course we ended up where we ended up. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic.
4: Two, two quick points here. First of all, I don't want to overestimate the average American's deep interest in antitrust law or the Sherman Act. <laughs> uh, but I do think there is an emerging hostility toward monopolies and toward uh, like this cartel-like use of market power to suppress pay um, with varying degrees of sophistication and understanding exactly how it works. But you see when you know Congress, when the Senate confirms Lena Kahn to the Federal Trade Commission by a, a very bipartisan vote, that is Republicans in the Senate showing that they care about antitrust, that they are concerned about monopolies. And I think that this renewed interest in monopoly power could be driving some of this Bipartisan skepticism Number two um, There is a social justice element here And it's one that surprisingly to me Brett Kavanaugh brings up in his opinion He says the student athletes who generate the revenues uh, Many of them are African American And from lower income backgrounds Who end up with little or nothing And cites the brief for African American Antitrust lawyers Not a brief I expected Kavanaugh to cite here Um, And so I think that to the extent That conservatives may be increasingly Hostile to uh, large corporations that present themselves as woke and also exercise monopoly power. Uh, Liberals are hostile toward corporations that uh, manipulate and abuse uh, minorities and use their labor to bring billions of dollars to already wealthy people. There is a common ground here. And even if conservatives and liberals may have different reasons for their skepticism toward the NCAA, at the end of the day, they can come together and maybe agree over this particular issue. I think Mark said that I was right. Any? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You just right. against institutions. I, I feel
2: like I, I I won that one, Steph. I'm sorry.
0: Sure. Well, but the, the <laughs> movement, and I think this is in Kavanaugh's um, opinion too is that if someone like Brett Kavanaugh says something, well, more conservatives are going to start to believe in it. Does that change the way that, you know, the people that you might think of as prototypical big college donors and boosters start to think? I mean, Kavanaugh says here, the bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year.
1: What I would say is that a really common argument you hear from the kind of like median troglodytic college sports fan is that...
2: (laughs) And he knows, having read Tiger Droppings, the LSU fan... I do know,
1: is that athletes who are not satisfied with getting a scholarship and an education are ungrateful. And I would play for free. So why would they um, dare ask for more than that? But the other thing that the median troglodytic sports fan cares about is winning and if and when the rules change they will be totally fine with athletes getting paid and then the next frontier will be like oh Alabama's cheating and paying I mean it's a very kind of like typical kind of back and forth cycle and Joel I I know you know it well but I do feel like Stefan is on to the fact that people will change their minds and not acknowledge that their minds have been changed and just figure out something new to be mad about. And, it, it, and there's it did this question not, it,
0: of... It did ah. not take long in the arc of history in sports, for fans to go from, oh, my God, we're paying Claudell Washington $300,000 a year to play baseball, to everybody being an armchair GM and analyzing the salary cap and how much each team is spending and urging them to spend more. I think something very similar will happen with college football and basketball.
2: I, I hope you all are right. I'm much more cynical about, like, um the resistance people have to seeing black people thrive in this country. And so I think that that may be an element that will still be foundational in any of these arguments going forward, but maybe you all will be right. Maybe it will change and I will be pleasantly surprised, but um, I haven't seen anything happening in the last decade that indicates to me that people are going to become more enlightened about like a racial justice issue, which is essentially black players being cut out of the wealth that they generate for these major institutions.
4: So, just one piece of speculation here um it may be that with this decision the horses are already out of the barn um because as i said the the court really undermines the legal theory that the ncaa has used to fix prices for all of these years to uh, to you know suppress competition um and now the supreme court has opened the door to kind of secondary backdoor ways for colleges to compensate athletes. I mean, we're not supposed to say that, but uh, and we all, we should all agree that, you know, like a scholarship for grad school is a worthy thing and, and, and is categorically different from direct compensation. Uh, but I think that schools are going to be able to use this decision to start offering increasingly lavish benefits uh, to students that are putatively tied to education. And this is what the NCAA feared, and Gorsuch kind of uh, pushes it aside and says that's not going to happen. But I don't know if that's right. Um, The NCAA speculates about, you know, athletes hiring limousines to take them to games and the school having to pay for it. I don't think I'd go that far. But you can imagine increasingly nice computers, technology given to student athletes, uh, payment for various trips and training, uh, all, all of these ways that athletes could get more money and more, you know, perks that leads to more competition that eventually creates a system where schools say, we would rather just pay them. Because having to deal with these kind of tricky backdoor uh, remunerations is more complicated than just cutting them a check.
2: We haven't talked about the NCAA statement. and You all tell me your impression of this. Like, it feels to me that the NCAA didn't, didn't consider itself losing. Did you, um, their statement was, while today's decision preserves the lower court ruling, it also reaffirms the NCAA's authority to adopt reasonable rules and repeatedly notes that the NCAA remains free to articulate what are and what are not. Truly educational benefits, consistent with the NCAA's mission to support student-athletes. Even though the decision does not directly address name, image, and likeness, the NCAA remains committed to supporting NIL benefits for student-athletes. Additionally, we remain committed to working with Congress to chart a path forward, which is a point the Supreme Court expressly stated in its ruling. That doesn't sound like...
1: What Uh, do you think they're going to say, They're going to fight this to the end. Of
2: course, but I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, of course, like obviously that's, they're going to put up a face, a stoic face in the, in the wake of this, but I mean, it feels to me that like, I mean, they're not going to roll over. And I mean, the NCAA is pretty much undefeated in the history, in the, in the course of amateur athletics in this country, the NCAA to me at least is undefeated. So why you guys disagree with me? I'm the only one, Mark, come, come on and help (laughs) and, and, and rally to my defense here.
4: The NCAA is going to try to to police the boundaries of this decision and strictly limit it, and I am just not convinced that it is going to be able to. I don't think that the category of education-related benefits is as narrow as either party makes it out to be. I think that when this is implemented in the real world, we're going to discover a lot more ways for schools to provide these perks to athletes, um, and that the NCAA is just not going to be able to police this decision to the extent that it doesn't expand to its logical limits and possibly even beyond that.
0: The NCAA is going to be holding on to its rule book. While it gets into the Titanic lifeboat, I mean, there's no doubt that they're just going to keep hiring lobbyists and lawyers to try to fight this until they can't fight it anymore. And then once they're done losing, they're going to say, well, of course, it's time to pay athletes their fair share.
4: Which is pretty much what they did with sports betting or what they're on track to do with sports betting. You know, took New Jersey to court, tried to say, you know, sports betting needs to remain illegal. And when, when the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on sports betting, the NCAA turned around and said, oh, well, we'll think about this one. And is probably trying to figure out a way to um, work within the system of sports betting now as well.
0: Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts, the Supreme Court, the law for Slate. Mark, thanks
1: for coming on the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
5: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
6: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus.
0: Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The U.S. track and field trials got underway in Oregon this past week. And if you want to hear about who showed up and who to watch at the Olympics, then you should stay tuned for our Slate Plus segment later in the show. But for now, we're going to talk about an athlete who did not run. 28-year-old Shelby Houlihan holds the American records in the 1,500 and the 5,000 meters. But earlier this month, the Court of Arbitration for Sport upheld a four-year doping suspension against Houlihan, a ruling that if it doesn't get overturned by some mechanism at some point, will knock her out of both the Tokyo Games, starting next month, and the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Houlihan tested positive for the anabolic steroid Nandrolone, And the story she's telling is that she ingested that steroid via a burrito she ordered from a food truck. Joining us now is David Epstein. He is the author of the books The Sports Gene and Range, and you can hear him on the Slate podcast, How To. Dave, thank you for being with us to discuss Shelby Houlihan's burrito. (laughs) Uh,
5: My pleasure. And, And by the way, she's definitely out of Tokyo now, no matter what, because she's now missed the trials. So she's out for sure. There we
1: go. All right. Uh, A correction right away. I love it. Um, So a little look behind the scenes for you guys. Dave is is often telling me what I'm right and wrong about when I ask him, not unsolicited. But as soon as I heard about the story, I started bothering him about it because it seemed so ridiculous. And I haven't gotten to the most amazing part in the introduction, which is, the Shelby Hula hand claims she ordered a carne asada burrito, which is a beef burrito, but that she ingested the nandrolone because she would eaten pig offal. So she was alleging burrito cross-contamination. But Dave, you told me that you don't think her story is so ridiculous, or actually, if it is ridiculous, you don't think it has much bearing on whether she's innocent or guilty.
5: I think there are a lot of different issues here, Josh. Let's start with the burrito. The burrito <laughs> is... We all, you should always start with the burrito. The burrito story is improbable, right? She didn't order uh, the, the pig offal. That said, there are a lot of improbable stories here. And, and she had to try to establish the source of the Nandrolone in order for her appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And they were appealing on a technical matter that, that hasn't really been in the news, which is that if it is meat contamination as opposed to like injected Nandrolone, the testing procedure is actually different. So with a female athlete, first they check, are they pregnant? Because there's some natural nandrolone if they're pregnant. When they say they're not, it goes to this other testing area. And then there's another split in what happens depending on if it turns out that it was naturally produced by, you know, some other animal or was it was it injectable? And so they were forced to argue the case to try to come up with some plausible story. So nandrolone, I will say when I reported on baseball, it was the when someone would say they had a you know a false positive test, it was a supplement. I always said BS, except I came around on nandrolone specifically because it's such a co- it's a common contaminant and it's the single easiest thing to test for. So even baseball's sorry ass testing basically kicked out nandrolone of use because if you inject it, which is how people typically use it, it's detectable for months, for months. Okay, and so if the answer is You actually don't know where it came from. If it was legitimate contamination, you still have to come up with some story for the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And so I'm stuck choosing between improbable stories, which is athletes have to be crazy to dope with nandrolone for years now. And Houlihan took, you know, she gave a hair sample. She had other tests around it that were negative. Uh, So she's probably not injecting it or those tests would have been positive. So it's improbable that someone would be taking it orally in the first place. So that's improbable. It doesn't work as well orally. It's it's the burrito story improbable. I'm I'm stuck between these improbable stories of maybe they don't know where it came from. It is a common contaminant. Nandrelin makes up most of the positive tests that the Athletics Integrity Unit finds overall. Uh, we, we know it gets injected into meat illegally, um, you know, versus the chance that she was, for some reason, taking it orally, which would be very rare and the stupidest thing you could possibly take. So I'm sort of stuck between these improbable stories. But my reflex these days when someone tests positive for nandrolone is to think that that may be accidental because it's like the one substance that everyone knows not to take on purpose anymore, but it's still a common contaminant.
2: But wait, Dave, so are you, seriously? So is your <laughs> sense then that people really don't mean to take nandrolone anymore as a performance-enhancing drug? Because I remember even going back to the 90s, like Linford Christie, Merlin yeah. like yeah. great Olympic sprint champions tested positive for nandrolone yeah. and were suspended, yeah. right? So yeah. is your sense then that it really is like fallen out of favor with elite athletes because it's so easy to detect?
5: Yeah, I think as testing has gotten somewhat better and and more truly random, it has it it quickly fell out of favor because if you're injecting it, which again is the way that people take it, it gets stored in your in your fat deposits and and the metabolites are detectable for like I mean, I've seen some papers that suggest up to 18 months, I think that's a little far-fetched, but for a long time. and otherwise, I guess you could take it orally. I haven't really heard of people doing that before and it also wouldn't be as effective. Uh, but I do think it's it's a drug that for professional athlete use kind of kind of went, Went bye bye when testing became legitimately random and independent.
0: Um, I am I'm at once thrilled that the National Pork Board is getting quoted in 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 the media and that there is a discussion about uncastrated boars, um, and there and there then you, what's you in be thrilled by that. I'm just I'm just really excited to see that in in, in the press. Um, but it's not that the burrito story is improbable; it's that it's irrelevant. Like you said, she had to make up something because to take your case to the Court of Arbitration of Sport, you need some defense, when the real defense here is that, A, these tests are probably too sensitive now, they're too good, they can detect too small traces of banned substances, and they sort of defy logic, because the logic of using nandrolone just doesn't exist anymore, as you just outlined.
5: Yeah, I mean, arguably, I'm sure there are athletes out there using it, but I can't Imagine it's it's just it's a horrible choice. Um, I know when the athletics integrity unit started, and they did a report on doping in Kenya, and there were a bunch of positives, and everyone was like, "There's a huge problem." If you actually look at the breakdown, most of them were nandrolone positives, and I don't think that's because suddenly, like, the most popular drug is the stupidest one to dope for. I think it's because it it actually is kind of a common contaminant. This is not to say that Shelby Houlihan is is not doping. I think I, I find it. I find the the Boer Burrito story to be improbable, but I also find it improbable that an athlete in her position um, took the last thing she should have taken and that somehow the tests around it also, like, tested negative. And again, not only did they have to make some case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, they had to make a case specifically establishing the source to say that the wrong testing pathway was gone down. And... So if if the answer is you don't know what the source is, you still have to come up with something. So
1: Lindsey Krauss in The Times did a really good piece last month about Brenda Martinez, the Olympian who nearly got banned for taking an antidepressant. And she came back, she tested positive for a diuretic that could be used as a masking agent. That diuretic was not on the label. And the reason that they found out it was in there was that once she tested positive, they sent it off to a lab to get tested and it was found to contain this this diuretic. And the story is really heartbreaking. Well, A, Brenda Martinez had to kind of come out and t- talk about and declare that she was suffering from depression. The bans here are so severe. Like, the Olympics only come around every four years. It's what you're training for your whole life. And if you get, you know, like Shelby Houlihan, as you said... She's not going to get the. They're not going to like, you know, hold the Tokyo Olympics again next year. They're not going to like delay it for a week to give her another chance. And so, if you do get falsely accused or falsely or suspended for a bad reason, like you can't really recover from that. And so there are these really heartbreaking stories. And Brenda Martinez thankfully is going to be able to to run. Um, she was able to to prove her case. When you read something like that. Dave, it again puts you in this uncomfortable position of, like, if Shelby Houlihan is telling the truth, feeling very bad for her, and if she's lying, as a lot of athletes have done in the past when they've been suspended or or, or accused, then it's really a terrible thing, given what happens to, like, people like Brenda Martinez, who are like legitimately stung by this system. Yeah,
5: and I mean, this is... This doesn't bear on her guilt or innocence, but this is like the worst four-year ban you could possibly imagine because the delayed Tokyo Olympics now make it a two-Olympic ban instead of a one-Olympic ban. Um, but that that doesn't bear on her guilt or innocence, though. But I think, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but Brenda Martinez's case was, her positive test came through the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, where uh, Shelby Houlihan's came through the Athletics Integrity Unit that was established in, in 2017 to sort of beef up uh, drug testing. And I think the athletics integrity unit pork up. What's that?
2: We said b- to pork beef, up, beef
5: up, pork, b- beef up, oh, to pork up, right. To uncastrated pork up the drug testing. And I think they, they set low thresholds. Um, so had Houlihan tested with a higher level of Nandrolone, it would have just automatically been an adverse finding and none of that technical issue of how it should be tested should have, could have occurred. But I think the athletics integrity unit has sort of implicitly said, you know, we're kind of willing to accept some more potential false positives to to get more dopers. And and that's a trade-off, you know, you you make. Um, how do you feel about that trade-off? I, gosh, that is a tough because, one.
1: Uh, because this, okay, let's assume that she did take the Nandrolone. The, like, trace amount here, would there even be a performance benefit for for, for taking this? I it guess depends on, on, on when she took it, and, it and how long yeah. it was leaving her system, t-
5: Yeah. Right? I mean, if she was taking this nandrolone purposely, then it seems to me for sure it would have been orally. Because if it were injected, which is the way, the only way that I had heard of athletes taking it when I was, uh, you know, doing doping reporting in sports. But but you could take it orally if you wanted to. Um, if she had injected it, her tests around that and her hair sample test that she gave would have also been positive. So if she's taking it intentionally, she's taking it orally. It would clear more quickly orally, so it'd be less effective, but it would clear more more quickly. So it depends how, you know, how close to someone taking it, you you end up testing them. Can, can we just take
2: a 30,000-foot a view for, for a second there? Because I, I guess, like, okay, let's say you catch Shelby Houlihan, right? Um, the, by no means should anybody believe that that means that all of a sudden there's going to be a clean Olympics and the, none of the runners. Are, you know, everybody, nobody tested positive, right? So I guess, oh, yeah. like, at this point, like, don't you – it just feels like testing is sort of like an antiquated – Testing for what people are testing for in the way that they're testing for it is sort of an antiquated notion now for athletes in the way that they prepare and train. Is that, is that fair or do you feel differently about it?
5: I don't know. I mean, you're certainly – you're definitely right that they're not – no matter what threshold they set, right? So, so my take is that setting low thresholds for things like Nandrolone means like most of the even moderately savvy dopers will still get through and you're going to catch a lot of people who, who accidentally – ingested something. I think there's, there's like pretty decent research that suggests to me that in track and field and the Olympics, there's probably about 30 to maybe 50% of the athletes have doped at one point or another. And you're certainly not getting that many positives. You know, usually it's like 2% a year or something like that. I think there, for, for a lot of years, when I was sort of reporting more actively on doping, it was almost like lockstep, like there'd be a technological improvement in, in drug testing, but then you know, dopers would adjust. And so you'd see between one to 2% of tests would be positive every year, even while there was technological change. I think the biological passport has made a little improvement on that, which is where instead of looking for a drug or its metabolites, you take, you test people repeatedly over time and you look for signature like fluctuations in their blood levels. Uh, So, so there was like a cycling team. I got some documents leaked from at one point where when Biological passports started, they all started looking like they were identical twins. So they had to dope less, and clearly they were engineering their blood levels in an unnatural way, so they were still doping, but they had to dope less. And I think things like Biological Passport put athletes today at a doping disadvantage compared to athletes of, of many years past. And I think one of the places you see that is, is a lot of the women's records are still stuck in like the 80s and early 90s, when you could really dope with very little chance of getting caught. So I think, I think people have to dope less now, but I still think the research suggests it's probably like a third to a half of track and field athletes who have doped at some point.
0: But then are we um, potentially being stuck with the notion that people that are getting caught are, in fact, not doping? I mean, a couple of these stories that have gotten some attention in the wake of of of, of the Hoolahan case are astounding. There's As Jarion Lawson, the Olympic uh, American long jumper— ate a beef teriyaki bowl at a Japanese restaurant in 2018 tested positive for a metabolite of trenbolone and then his agent had to go track down the beef supplier for the restaurant and he was exonerated because of text messages that in which he like said what he was going to go have for lunch and his agent said had he ordered the chicken bowl instead of the beef bowl he would have saved himself 2 million dollars and his reputation this seems just absurd
5: and it's incredibly improbable, but that turned out to be true, right? And luckily, they were able to establish a source. Like people inject, whether legally or illegally, people inject steroids into uh, animals for the same reasons they inject them into humans. More meat, right? That 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 happens. You can imagine people don't, like, care a lot about in- injecting into animals. So those things happen. You just have to hope that you get lucky to establish the source. I mean, so that's that's where I'm concerned about the athletics integrity unit, which is, again, that I think the savvy dopers, you know, are still largely going to get through, even though I think Biological Passport and sort of human intelligence gathering has made some improvements. Um, But just doing sort of the threshold lowering in the absence of anything else, I don't think you're going to get a lot more real dopers, but I think you're going to, some maybe, but you're going to get a lot more uh, sort of accidental cases. And, And, you know, fortunately for a lot of athletes in the U.S., they like get legal representation and appeal and a lot of other places they don't really have those, you know, so athletes from poorer places just like fade away and don't end up fighting those fights.
1: So maybe we can end with uh, kind of a conversation about branding, the ways in which athletes, and I think distance runners in particular, Dave, there's just this um, reputation that people on certain teams have and certain athletes kind of make it part of their image that they're clean and that they wanna get dopers out of the sport. And this team that Shelby Houlihan is on reputed to be a clean team, right? And that they kind of talk about being clean athletes. And my sense was that that led to a lot of people being kind of disappointed or disillusioned when they heard about Shelby Houlland. And so I'd like to get your kind of thoughts on both athletes who represent themselves as being clean and make that a big part of their self-identity and whether that should kind of carry any, any weight with us, but also about just like the <laughs> continued capacity for people who follow the sport to be like surprised and disappointed when anyone yeah. tests positive for anything.
5: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I think self-identification as, as being clean should not carry a lot of weight. um You know, I think we've learned that lesson, uh you know, from, from Lance, if no one else. Right. Uh, I, I do think there are things you can do though. Like, you know, I think it would be interesting if Shelby Huland decided to release her biological passport data. Like, that would be interesting to look at, because obviously she hasn't been sanctioned because of that. But when you look at someone's biological passport data, you can, you can say, short of someone being sanctioned, like, that doesn't look so good, you know? So I, so I think there's steps that athletes could take. Then again, Lance did that at one point, and... and <laughs> Put on the internet briefly before taking it down, a clear doping signature. Uh, somebody must have alerted him after that. But I think people in the running community, there are teams you hear lots of rumors about. And and a lot of times those rumors end up bearing out in some way or another. And I would say in the running community, this was not a team that you heard a lot of those rumors about. Doesn't mean someone's not doping. Um, individuals on an otherwise clean clean team can be doping on their own. But I think that's part of the disappointment is that that like you hear chatter about <laughs> about teams where things are going on a lot and this this wasn't one of those teams so i think the disappointment but it also extra. could be part
1: of her defense right
5: it could be it could be um but but obviously i think we can't take uh take athlete's grandstanding um you know at face value necessarily unfortunately
0: but we also need to factor in that these organizations shouldn't be considered above reproach either there's all sorts of conflicts of interest particularly in the european ones the world anti-doping agency the court of arbitration for sport overlapping with ioc members you've got like the head of the us anti-doping agency travis Tigert, you know talking openly about how we're sacrificing innocent athletes so a, a lack of trust in this system overall I mean, it feels like we've gone a little bit from not trusting athletes at all and assuming everyone was doping because that was the, you know, not an unreasonable assumption, to being skeptical of the of the process by which we attempt to catch athletes.
5: I mean, it's a it's a political it's a political body. Before Rio, when I was at ProPublica, I did a an interview with Wada's a guy who had just left as Wada's only, first and only investigator had been a former D.A. and and he just sort of came out openly and said you know, that his boss was slow walking like the Russia investigations because the head of WADA was an IOC member. Right. And so these are these are political bodies. You know, in, in many cases, I think international sports governance bodies are like have all the conflicts of interests of international politics, but with even less of the accountability, because it's like once the event starts or once the ball rolls out, you know, in the World Cup, it's like everybody ignores that other stuff. So, yeah, I think you have a lot of political conflicts and motivations that have nothing to do with clean sport, basically.
1: David Epstein is the author of the books The Sports Gene and Range. You can listen to him on the Slate Podcast. How to, Dave, always make sure that you know where your food is coming from.
5: Yeah, have, just feel free, anytime you want to talk about uncastrated pigs, you know where to find me.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
6: We became brothers that day when he did that to us.
1: We made a
4: change, fighting for what we deserve.
3: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: Now it is time for after balls, and we told the story. Stefan, you told the story of uh, Jerrion Lawson in our previous segment. The guy who tested positive because of the uh, teriyaki ball. Lindsey Krauss in the New York Times in her story about Brenda Martinez included a couple of other examples of what are known as no fault cases, ones that are overturned because it wasn't the athlete's fault. Um, She mentioned a member of the Olympic softball team and an Olympic hopeful boxer both tested positive only to find out they'd been exposed to banned substances through sex with their partners. Word to the wise. And then, and I quote, in 2018, a 90-year-old man in Indiana named Carl Grove, who set an age group world record in cycling, tested positive for a metabolite of the anabolic steroid Trenbolone. He lost the record and his national title and was issued a warning. The steroid was almost certainly in a liver dish he ate before the race. Stefan, be careful. Be, be careful about uh, eating liver before you play in the softball games. We don't, we don't want your uh, records to get tossed out. Uh, Stefan, what is your... Carl Grove. Last
0: week during our conversation about Christian Eriksson of Denmark, I mentioned the 1971 death of Chuck Hughes of the Detroit Lions, the only player to die on the field in an NFL game. I said I remembered it, but barely. I was eight years old at the time. Hughes was 28, a 5'11", 175-pound wide receiver out of Texas, El Paso. He didn't play much. In five NFL seasons, he caught just 15 passes. His only reception in 1971 was on the day that he died, Sunday, October 24th. With 1.38 to play and the Lions trailing the Bears 28-23, Hughes caught a 32-yard pass from Greg Landry to the Chicago 36-yard line. After two more incomplete passes, neither to him, with just over a minute left, Hughes started to jog back to the huddle and collapsed. Bears linebacker Dick Butkus said after the game that he first thought Hughes was acting to earn the Lions an extra timeout. Then I saw his eyes rolling and he turned blue, Butkus said. Photos show Hughes face down, his right arm bent awkwardly. He's wearing a single bar face mask and black puma cleats. In one shot, a referee is bending over, checking on him. In another, a Lions doctor is performing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Doctors also did CPR on the field. Hughes was placed on a stretcher, fitted with an oxygen mask, and taken to Henry Ford Hospital, where an hour later he was pronounced dead. The players didn't know in the moment what doctors said later, that Hughes had died on the 15-yard line. Unlike Denmark and Belgium after Ericsson's collapse, the game resumed. The Lions turned the ball over on downs, and the Bears ran out the clock. Even considering the football circumstances, Detroit down five, driving for a winning score, and a half a century of cultural evolution, it seems pretty incredible that, given what everyone had just seen, they finished the game. Listener Daniel Waldron wondered whether there was any contemporaneous pushback. The only thing I found was in a sidebar in the Chicago Tribune that opened with a quote from a tearful Bears receiver named Bob Wallace, who was a college teammate of Chuck Hughes. I wished they'd called the damn game off, Wallace said. Media coverage included football-free accounts on page one of papers including the Tribune and the New York Times. Sports sections, though, treated Hughes' demise as part of the game story. The headline on the front of the Tribune sports section was Death Shadows Bears Victory. One Michigan paper used a photo of Hughes on the stretcher with an AP story. The headline, Lions are handed a 28-23 upset by Bears. The most remarkable media performance, though, might have been Howard Cosell's halftime highlights on Monday Night Football the next day. Cosell opens with three minutes of breathless rehashing of Bengals Raiders and Broncos Browns. Then there's a commercial break, STP oil, Firestone tires. Then, coming out of the break, a shot of the Lions mascot and the Detroit players running on the field.
6: Tiger Stadium, Detroit, Michigan, the Lions coming out onto the field to face the Chicago Bears in a game that was ultimately to produce the terrible tragedy of Chuck Hughes. This is first quarter action. The Bears trailing three to nothing, but Don Shai taking the handoff from South Park quarterback Bobby Douglas bursting 21 yards for the touchdown, and the Bears leading. The
0: pro shift in tone there by Cosell. The dude is dead, but to the action. To justify continuing with the highlights, a little bit of somber foreshadowing now by Cosell.
6: No thought at this time of what was to occur later. Second quarter action, 13-15 remaining. Chicago leading 7-6. Bobby Douglas throwing long to George Farmer. Farmer taking the ball.
0: There's literally two more minutes of game highlights. A Bobby Douglas touchdown pass. His coach moved in with him to prepare for this game. 102-yard kickoff return, another Douglas touchdown throw, an unremarkable interception. You must watch this play closely. Finally, and we're like seven minutes into the highlights now, here's what we hear.
6: But the scene is set for fourth quarter action. And with only four minutes and four seconds gone, Bobby Douglas keeps it, goes in for the score. The Bears win 28-23, but the whole game washed away. Because of the loss of Chuck Hughes.
0: So did they cut to a commercial there and the highlights and go back to the booth for some somber chatter? Nope. Before Cosell even finishes saying the loss of Chuck Hughes, we get a tight shot of a white guy in a headdress and face paint. Kansas City Chiefs, Municipal Stadium, Kansas City, the big game of Sunday. Earlier on Monday, the Lions team doctors had announced that Hughes had died of a heart attack. They claimed it was inevitable because of undetected blocked arteries. It turned out that Hughes had collapsed in the locker room after a preseason game seven weeks earlier and was hospitalized for four days. In the subsequent weeks, he complained even publicly about chest pains, but doctors said they couldn't find anything wrong and later cleared him to play. An autopsy revealed that Hughes had, in fact, likely suffered a previous heart attack. Hughes's widow sued the hospital and settled out of court.
2: Wow, that I mean, I you know this was 1971. Uh, maybe were people just a little less sentimental about death because we were right in the middle of uh, Vietnam or something? Or, I don't, <laughs> I, I you know what I mean? I just it just seems like yeah, well, uh, Next man up, you know, basically, I mean, basically, that's what uh, Howard Cosell said.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I thought it in, contextually, what I think is interesting is that it's the NFL, right? This is like, this is the league that kept playing after Kennedy was assassinated. I couldn't find anything in newspapers with a reaction from the league. There was no statement from from the NFL's uh, main office. Pete Rozelle, the commissioner, didn't attend Chuck Hughes' funeral. He sent two representatives instead. Um, And the league didn't do anything really afterward. The league didn't sort of force teams to add defibrillators in stadiums. Uh, An NFL spokesman told the AP which did a survey of cardiac care at football stadiums. Each club has a qualified physician and will handle such matters individually. So, yeah, I think there was a uh, let's move on here, next game, next man up.
1: I mean, maybe the mentality from the league was if we don't talk about this or make a big deal of this, then we won't be held liable for this. It it does seem like they wanted to... Make the argument that this had nothing to do with football, that it was just a coincidence that he happened to be playing football when this happened.
0: No, and it's funny you should mention that, Josh, because the sort of day two stories after the Lions doctors went before the media and sort of covered their asses by saying, hey, this was undetectable. We did all these tests months ago. There was no indication that, you know, that we could have known that Chuck Hughes was a time bomb the lead of the ap story after that news conference was that football cannot be blamed for the death of chuck hughes and that was actually the headline in lots of newspapers
1: yeah i mean the nfl is going to do what it does it seems like the blame there a lot of it should go on the media for not being skeptical yeah that is our show for today our producer this week was margaret kelly listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hang up and you can email us at hang up at slate.com. And don't forget, subscribe to the show, rate and review us on Apple podcasts. Be a pal. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.
2: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?